You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. We want to inspire you to demand more from your money by first knowing what you own and what you owe and what you want from your money. We'll help you reach your financial goals faster at fidelity.com slash demand more. Her money comes to you through PRX. Hey, everybody. It's Jean Chatsky. Welcome to Her Money. Thank you so much for joining me, joining us. This show is put together by a team of wonderful women who we don't shout out to often enough. So a big thank you to Catherine and Christine and everybody who works to pull this together. Today, we are going to wade into the waters of one of my favorite topics. We're going to talk about investing. And I have to say, you know, we tape these podcasts a little bit before they air, and we are taping this one on a day where CEOs made news for being great corporate citizens. They actually signed a pledge of sorts put out um, by the business roundtable that said, hey, it's not all about the shareholder anymore. It's also about all of the other stakeholders in how well companies are doing. And we have to think about them as well. We have to think about the employees. We have to think about the customers. We have to think about the environment. We have to think about the impact that we as a business are having on the world rather than just maximizing shareholder value. It's a very interesting investing-related conversation to dive into, and fortunately for me, fortunately for you, we've got a great guest to help us today. Megan Schleck is an expert in impact investing. She's co-founder and CEO of an investing platform called Coin, and it's a conscious investing platform. It allows all of us to put our money into companies that are making an impact in those areas that we care about, whether we care about the environment or women's rights or buying local or animal protections or women on boards. The list goes on and on. And you can find, you can invest in companies that are doing all of those things. In other words, your passion for making money and your actual passions in life can fit together. And when they do fit together, what happens is typically women and millennials and other people like us, we get excited about doing more with our money. Megan, thanks so much for joining us. So happy to be here. Thank you, Jean. Thanks for coming in. So I know because we were talking about it before we sat down in the studio that you were watching this announcement Mm -hmm. from the about 180 CEOs as well. What does this mean? Yeah, it's really exciting to me, both personally because of how closely, you know, we are focused on 
you know, how businesses are actually acting and responding. And to me, it's a um, representation of a bigger cultural movement we're facing. There's a boycott culture, whether it's, you know, you going to the grocery store and purchasing organic foods or wanting to when you buy that latte, actually have it be in an environmentally friendly cup. There's just a, a big movement, I think, for people to be more conscious about how they are spending their money. You said boycott culture? Yes, the next generation of boycotting. And what does that mean exactly? It really means having the ability to actually make your stance known in what you're purchasing, what you're investing in. So you're, rather than not buying things because you're opposed to them, you are buying things, investments, because you're for them. Exactly. So you're putting your money where your mouth is. Exactly. Got it. And I think that translates to um, how you invest. And so when I see uh, leaders of businesses actually recognize that value comes not just from profitability, uh, which is, I think, how they are thinking about shareholder uh, value, it's actually thinking about the sustainability of their business. And that kind of holistic perspective, I think, is really important to, to think about as we build a collective economy together. Larry Fink from BlackRock has been leading, I think, this rallying cry for quite some time. I mean, he's been writing these annual letters to CEOs about how companies need to be good citizens of the planet, not just good corporate citizens. Absolutely. And, you know, there's a piece to it where um, the business is actually then also making profit when they think sustainably about their business. There's a lot of research and studies around de-risking of businesses when they think more holistically about the impact, you know, for what's material to their business. Um, And I think for COIN, we obviously really care deeply about people's voices, and there really hasn't been an avenue for an everyday investor to have a place where their voice can really be heard. Um, And so what we're trying to do is really combine both of those together, that it's the company thinking about the shareholder in a broader sense, but also us being able to act on our values. If I were to go to COIN, how does that work? The first thing we ask everyone to start with is to reflect on what their values are. What is it that you really care about? So for me, when I start to go to COIN and actually started to invest, I was really passionate about environmental topics. So I went in and I selected three impact areas that really resonated for me. The ones I selected were climate action, gender equality, and then uh, reduce, reuse, and recycle. And so those three impact areas are what I really believe are important for me. Once someone selects their impact areas, we actually recommend Um, a portfolio for you. So we go out, pick stocks that we think are really having a meaningful impact um, in that particular area. And then we combine that into a holistic portfolio for you and manage it for you so that you don't have to deal with the rebalancing and kind of the, the challenges of making sure that your money is diversified and appropriately invested considering risk. For people who only invest through their 401k or their 403b who might have a brokerage window and who are wondering, could I do this from within my 401k? Can they piggyback on your research and go to your site, do the screen, and essentially learn these are the companies that I might want to buy? I mean, certainly you could go onto the site and actually look at the companies. And if you want to you know, do your own research, we really want people to actually know where their money is going and what it's supporting. So if you want to apply that in different areas, uh, absolutely. We really think that the methodology that we've created is really unique and primarily because we're actually looking at companies' goals 
future forward. It's not just screening, you know, which is kind of the traditional SRI. It's not um, just looking at the revenue that a business is making or the corporate conduct. We look at all of those things, but we also look at what sort of goals they've set and are they actually acting for those goals. Tell me a little bit more about you. So you come to this from a very different background. You were a wilderness guide for many, many years. What made you do a 180 and say, okay, now I'm going to be, now I'm going to launch a business in finance? Yeah, it, it's it been quite the journey. So I, I joke that I was, you know, in the backcountry in the wilderness and then a few days later was in the office with heels. So it was a very uh, startling transition. And for me, it was driven by wanting to understand money. And, you know, I just had never really learned about investing or had understood investing myself. And so there, it started with a personal interest in just wanting to get smarter about money. Um, and then as I did that, I started to face a problem, which is that I didn't really understand where my money was going and, and what it was supporting. Um, for me, the environment is a big passion point. Um, I've obviously spent a lot of time in the in the wilderness, and it just is like such a, a place where, um, you know, I think I want future generations to also be able to experience. And so I take that, you know, with me as I entered into money management and finance and um it, uh, it's been an interesting journey to learn and that challenge of trying to figure out where my money was going and what it was supporting um, was kind of the initial problem that I faced. So for me, it was the experience of that and wanting to make it a lot easier for people to actually understand um, how their money is actually getting invested we did a show a while back with a woman named Nicole Connolly, who is at Fidelity. She heads up their ESG, Investing, Environmental, Social, Global, otherwise known as Impact Investing. And one of the things that we got into was the fact that right now, I believe it's one in five dollars are being invested according to these ESG principles. They're being put to work by these principles. In light of the fact that there's so much going on already, why launch a new platform? How's Coin different? For us, it was about bringing that access to everyone. So where kind of initially, I think a lot of access has come as in ETFs and mutual funds and these packaged products. But what is not possible is actually having any level of control over what's actually going into the actual product itself. So what we did when we built Coin was we really invested in the customization um, of our portfolio. So you actually can directly own stocks rather than a packaged mutual fund or ETF. And for us, the, that was important because it allowed people to actually know directly the companies that their money was, was going to. And you can do it with not a lot of money. I mean, when I was taking a look at it, that was what was appealing to me. You can get in for as little as $50. Yeah. Right now, there's no other platform that is able to do that, to be accessible for people at $50, fractional share traded. You know, there's a lot that went into building it. And I think that's really fundamental for us is making sure that access is possible for people. What are you seeing as far as your customers go? What are they most interested in? And I mean, I'm particularly interested in women. What do you see women buying? This is such a, a loaded question this week for us because we were just looking at um, what values our customers were actually selecting. And there's a number of women on my team. And for us, I think gender equality is an impact area that we offer that we're eager to see, you know, do well. 
And interestingly, it's not being uh, selected in at the same rate that other areas are being being selected. Why do you think that is? It's something that we're trying to grapple with. You know, we we think about it all the time. How do we get women to support more women and to get everyone on the train to support promoting women? And it, I don't think we we know quite yet why. So if we're not buying investments that are targeted at managing gender equality, what are we buying? So the top impact area right now is climate action. I'm not surprised. Not surprised. Um, It's a little bit different by generation, and I think that's something that we've been really excited to see, that it's it's not just young investors. It's a whole range of investors, Uh, whether you're 80 and trying to build your kind of personal endowment for future generations or if you're just just starting um, on your saving and investing journey. So we're seeing a wide range, and the values are a little bit different depending on the age group. One of the things that I've seen in research is – The fact that women are often a little more reluctant to either invest or to wear the banner of investing, to call ourselves investors. I've been doing a series of events, and I'll often ask the question, are you an investor? And maybe 30% of the hands go up, and they go up kind of shyly, and then I'll ask, do you have a 401k? And every hand goes up really fast because... That is something that we can all relate to. And in my book, having a 401k pretty much makes you an investor. What is it about investing that we are not wrapping our brains around? It's a really intimidating topic. You know, for me, I think it was hard to even just know how to get started. It's not a conversation at the water cooler, you know, for me when I was first getting started. And I think that that's a big barrier for a lot of people just starting out and trying to kind of change the concept of themselves. And I think it's a big issue. For me, it's how do we promote these conversations to actually start talking about money as a group of women? And the impact that it might be able to make. We're going to dive a little bit into mission-based investing and also into why this year and why going into 2020, people are so hot and heavy on this subject. But before we do that, let me just remind everybody that Her Money is proudly sponsored by Fidelity Investments. We want you talking about your money, and we're here to remind you that you work way too hard to let your money just sit in savings. Whether you are new to the workforce, whether you are approaching retirement, Fidelity can help advise you throughout your career and beyond so that your money is working just as hard as you are. It all starts with a yearly financial checkup and an understanding of what you own and what you owe. And from there, the folks at Fidelity can work with you to evaluate your investments, to determine ways to grow your savings, to keep you on track, to reach all of your various life goals. And you can start demanding more from your money today at fidelity.com slash demand more. We are happily talking with Megan Schleck, CEO and co-founder of COIN, a conscious investing platform that allows you to put your money into companies that are making an impact in the areas that you care about most. So you said to us before we started this interview that you think 2020 is going to be a big year for this. Can you talk about why? I think anytime people are understanding or going into an election year. It's thinking about their vote and how they participate in our democracy. And I think it's a really interesting thing to compare to 
money and the decisions you make about your money, because that is another way that you can really have a say and a voice on the world. You know, so I think going into 2020, we looked and even going back into the kind of previous election seasons, we hear a lot. People feel like their values are not getting reflected in leadership. Um, of this country and uh, in their government leaders. And so we are are looking at how else could you have your voice heard? And I think having your money have that alignment with your values is, I think, a, one way to make sure that you're voicing and having a say. When I was working on my book, Women with Money, I wrote a chapter on legacy because I had asked women what they want from their money. And legacy was a big one. It was, I, you know, I want to I wanna leave an imprint. I want to make sure that my family is okay, that my community is okay, that the world is okay. And so we talked about giving a great deal. But I think this idea that you could do the same by investing is only starting to resonate with people. You know, we've thought about investing as a selfish exercise, not a selfless one. How and why has that changed? I don't think it necessarily has, which I don't know if that's a controversial statement, but I feel like investing is meant to, for us at least, it, it, it is meant with the goal of trying to get uh, return. You know, we're not looking to just do philanthropic giving. And there's an important distinction there. I think it's important that this doesn't replace other ways that you're trying to make an impact, whether it's volunteering with your family or um, getting giving directly to an organization you're really passionate about. Those are other ways to make an impact. And this is just one of what should be and hopefully is many different ways that you're trying to give back. Some people don't have enough money even to invest. And so they may just be dedicating their time. And I think that's a really important place to start. Uh, so for us, it isn't about not getting return. There, there is a, a dual goal uh, for us of returns and and impact. When I started reporting, I was, you know, in my 20s. I was a reporter at Forbes magazine, and we wrote a lot about socially responsible investing. A woman named Amy Domini was leading the charge. She was new. She was a pioneer. It was not considered a way to make the most money that you possibly could. When, you know, you were choosing to either invest in a socially responsible way or to do as well as you could in terms of profits. Has that changed? It's a good question. I think there's been a lot of research talking about the long-term benefits of companies thinking about sustainability or impact, you know, and what's really material for their business that they will long-term perform very well. Um, and, you know, for us, we're not looking to get 10x return. This is not a venture capital fund. We are, you know, investing people's money in publicly traded uh, large cap stocks. Uh, these are big companies, PepsiCo, Microsoft. Like These are large companies that aren't your traditional kind of VC model. So it's, you know, I think in terms of how does that uh, connect with the history of SRI, I think there's just now many more ways that you can have your values incorporated into your financial decisions. How's COIN doing? Oh, doing well. So we launched in March in just this past March. So we're about six months in, and it's been really exciting to see the reaction. Great growth. And I think for us, what matters is people having access to be able to invest in a custom portfolio for them. Um, so we're really excited to see how it grows over the next uh, several months. 
when you think back to your history, you know, being a wilderness guide, being a woman CEO, running a company for which you probably either had or will have to go out and raise some money is like being in a different kind of wilderness. There are not a lot of women where you are. How has that been? You know, it's funny because when people ask me about what it's like to be a woman, usually it's about being a woman in finance. And I always say, well, it's not just women in finance, not just a woman in venture capital. It's, or you know, not directly VC, but women uh, as, a, as a CEO. But it's also being a woman in tech. Yeah. You know, Coin is a tech platform. So here you have some of the most male-dominated uh, industries. It's kind of a merge of all three of those. And it's been challenging. It's obviously a hard place to be. Um, I have a lot of empathy for other founders, especially female founders, who that are really chasing their dream and trying to bring to reality uh, something that they really believe in. How'd you do it? I mean, for other women who are listening, who are women founders, women in tech, women in finance, who are just looking to break through, what advice would you give them? I think for me, what's really kept all the hard work worth it is just being really connected and passionate about the topic that you're working on. Um, So I think that's fundamental is table stakes is to be passionate about what you're doing and to really believe in in the product. Um, I think the other part of this is finding really great partners. So John Hancock for us is our key partner. Um, they've really invested in coin and helping to build coin and making sure that your partners are the right partners for you, I think, is a really important uh, step. John Hancock happens to also really be passionate about corporate responsibility and giving back. And I think that alignment around values focus has been really helpful for building coin. Well, Megan Schleck, it has been a pleasure to have you in the studio. If our listeners want to learn a little bit more, where should they go? We have a website, investwithcoin.com. Okay. Thank you so much. I hope you'll come back. Keep us posted. Her Money's Catherine Tuggle has joined me in the studio. Hey, Catherine. Hey, Jean. Nice to see you. You too. So here's what I was wondering, and you're a little bit younger than me. You are, um, I am on the cusp of Xer and Boomer. Right. I'm born in 1964. Makes me 54 years old. (laughs) And uh, I actually asked Elliot the other day if I was 55 already. Like, I just (laughs) couldn't remember. Yeah. He was like, no, you're 54. Don't push it. I always say I'm a year older than I am so that I can get ready for it mentally. That's a very good strategy. I did that before I turned 40 and before I turned 50, and I think it helped. Mm -hmm. But I think it's also why I'm continually confused to this day about how old I am. Right. Yeah. So, But you are the opposite, right? You're a millennial Xer. You're right. I am on the cusp, too. And I read an article that described this generation as Xennial. But I also feel like, to a certain extent, what generation you're in has to do with where you grew up. Because growing up in rural Alabama, there was no internet. There were no cell phones. Oh. So I think I was born in 82, and I think that born in 82 in Birmingham is a lot different than born in 82 in New York City. Born anywhere is different than born in New York City, right? The New York teens (laughs) I know are just older than than their years always. But continue. I I think you're right. I I didn't have internet or a cell phone until college. And in college, all my notes were handwritten. I would go to the computer lab to write a paper if I needed to print it. So I think 
in my mind, millennials are defined by the fact that they grew up with a tablet in their hand. Yep. And that was absolutely not my situation. I grew up on Friends, and I can still remember moonlighting. And <laughs> when when push comes to shove, I say I am Gen X all the way. Okay. All right. So that noted, What what's your reaction to impact investing. I mean, I I have always been, as you know, I've been this boring investor. I'm index funds. I'm low cost all the way. But I'm really interested in moving some of my money around to invest by these principles. I mean, I just, I'm so worried about how the climate is changing and everything that I've been seeing and, and worried about... Uh, I mean, there's so many different causes to get behind, but the fact that you can now do this without sabotaging your returns is really intriguing to me. I definitely think that millennials are interested in it. We have the data that show that they are, but I feel like this is for everybody who wants to make a difference. Yeah. You know, my parents are in their late 70s, and I feel like they and all of their friends want to do something as they think about leaving a legacy. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Have you done any of this? Uh, we mentioned Nicole Connolly, right, who we had on the show. She's in charge of ESG investing over at Fidelity, but she also runs a fund that is their women's empowerment fund. I'm not sure if I got the title of that right. I will I will make sure and put it in the show notes, but I bought some of that um, because I was – you know, I, I've read all the research on how companies run by women with more women in the C-suite tend to do better. I want to encourage more women in the C-suite. And, and I just thought, yeah, I'm going to buy some of that. So I bought some of that. That's great. Yeah. So more to come. You'll have to let us know how it performs. I, I will keep an eye on it. How are we doing with mailbag questions? We have some exciting questions today. Our first one is from Rebecca in Chicago. She writes, I bought my one-bedroom condo in Chicago in 2004 for $102,000. Our building got hit very hard by the housing crisis. At one point, 13 of 40 units in the building were in foreclosure, and the last of those foreclosures finally sold at auction 18 months ago for $32,000. Last year, I consulted two different realtors, both of whom told me I would be lucky to get $50,000 for my place. I owe $61,000 on the mortgage. I cannot stay in this unit because it's a third-floor walk-up and an old knee injury has come back to haunt me in middle age. I'm going to consult with realtors again soon, but if they still give me bad news, I don't know what to do next. If I can get 50000 for the place, I actually have the 11000 in savings to pay off the remainder of the mortgage, and honestly, that is my first instinct. Buying this place was a huge mistake, and I regret it every day. It's caused me nothing but anxiety, and I just want out. My friends and neighbors told me I should hang on to the unit and rent it out, but that's a headache. I don't want to be a landlord, and I'm terrified of getting a bad tenant who might trash the place. They all think that prices will come back to their 2004 levels eventually because our neighborhood as a whole is rebounding from the crisis, but I don't think they're correct. The building is very poorly managed and not maintained well, and because there is already a very high percentage of renters in it, we are almost at the threshold where we could lose our status as a condo association. Oh, my God. They think I shouldn't walk away from my very poor investment. I think they are engaging in the sunk cost fallacy, and I should probably <laughs> get out while the place is still mine to sell. 
I need the perspective of a neutral third party. What would Jean do? Sell the damn place. <laughs> I mean, seriously, it's making you anxious. It's making you unhappy. You have the money to get out and look forward. You've got a bad knee. Just, oh my God, sell. I would sell the apartment. But before I sell it, I would make a call to your lender and just ask about a short sale. A short sale is where you are allowed to sell for less than you owe. You may owe taxes on the difference between what you owe and what you sell for, but that may be less than coming out of pocket for the other $11,000. And should you not get the full $50,000, that may be easier to stomach. If they say no, I'd sell it anyway. I just think life is too short. You don't want to be a landlord. There are plenty of people who want to be landlords. They know they want to be landlords. They don't mind getting up in the middle. You know, they understand what's coming. They understand that if the toilet breaks, they are going to get a call. It might be in the middle of the night. It's going to be on them or they're going to pay a management company to deal with it. And I want you to take heart in the fact that you are not alone. I bought my house in 2005. I was going through a divorce and I paid more than anybody on my block had ever paid. And if I sold my house today, I would not get what I paid for it. And I put money into it. I did the basement. I did the kitchen. This was not an investment. This was a place to live. And I think sometimes that's how we have to think about these things. You bought yourself a place to live. It didn't turn out as well as you thought. Sell it, move on, and start rebuilding your financial life. Great advice. Is there a way that people can write off those losses on their taxes? So what happens is that it shows up as a gain. The difference between what she owes the bank and what she pays the bank is considered a gain, and she may actually have to pay taxes on that. And so that is just something to consider as she goes into it. But it wouldn't be the same as paying the full $11,000 herself, okay. assuming that's the difference. Got it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Thank you. All right. What's next? Next is a note from Dania, who says she started listening to the Her Money podcast recently and has really enjoyed it while she's driving in her car. She writes, I am 18 and have almost $5,000 saved in my checking account from my job. Wow. Wow. I am starting college this fall and would like to start investing most of this money, probably around 4000 My current idea is to invest just under half in a high-yield three- to four-year CD so that I can have access to it at the end of college and just under half into a relatively low-risk options such as bonds and maybe some mutual funds so that I can use the money I gain from this after college as well. Then I would like to invest the remainder into an IRA. I will get a job as soon as possible once I move into my dorm so that I can continue making monthly contributions to each of my investments. I was hoping to get your input on my plan strategy and hear your suggestions as to how I could improve my plan. Thank you so much for all you do. First of all, you're awesome, right? I mean, Dania, you are just awesome. Here, here's how I would think about this money. I would think about a long-term bucket and a short-term bucket. I think by splitting it into three different 
categories, you're complicating matters more than they have to be. The money that you want to have access to when you come out of college should be in a low-risk option because you're thinking that you may want to use it to get your first apartment. You may want to use it to buy your first car. And a three- to four-year CD, that's a fine place to put it. Shop around for interest rates there, go to a site like bankrate.com and just look for the very, very best CD rates. We even have some new savings tables up at hermoney.com, so you might be able to find them there. And put that chunk into something safe. Now, bonds are not quite as conservative as CDs, but they are also fairly conservative, especially if you buy safer bonds like shorter-term government bonds. Where you want to put your longer-term money is into an account where it can grow tax-deferred. That's your IRA. And then from within that IRA, you want to invest it in something with real growth potential. That's stocks. So an IRA or a Roth IRA, either one will work for this purpose. Since you've already paid the taxes on that money, you might want to look at a Roth because you'll never have to pay the taxes again. And then the money in that account goes into a broadly diversified stock fund that might invest in the entire stock market. It might invest in the S&P 500. It just should be a big, big basket of stocks so that it can grow for your future. And then that's the money that you continue to add to and add to and add to over time and you eventually retire on. But I got to say, I think you are amazing. And if you send us, we'll we'll send you an email with this information, but you are clearly going to be a woman with money. So if you send us your snail mail address, I will happily send you a book. Absolutely. You deserve it. Last one? Last one. We have Terry in Hawaii. Aloha. Aloha, Terry. Aloha, Terry. She says, I'm 54 and single. I recently received an inheritance of about 45000 I have debt, student loan debt that I took out for my son, a mortgage, no emergency fund, and I live paycheck to paycheck. Sometimes I wonder how the heck I do it, but I have been getting by. I want to be better. I want to be financially independent, but I feel like I'm drowning right now, and I was hoping you'd be able to guide me. I've listed my financial status below, and she says, yearly gross income of 48000 an employer of 401k with 65000 She's currently contributing 3% and getting a 3% match. She has her $45,000 inheritance. She has a 401k loan of 9000 that she's paying back at $300 a month. She has a parent plus student loan of 50000 that she's paying back at 300 a month. She has a $265,000 mortgage, which is $1125 a month. She has credit card debt of $5,000, and she's paying $200 a month toward that. She says, I do have a small side business that can bring in an additional $1,000 a month. What would you suggest is the best way to use the inheritance money and move forward? We are going to clear the decks of debt. That's what you're going to do. And the way you're going to do it is by first just trying to reduce your interest rates, if you can, on anything, and then by looking at your debts from highest interest rate on down. So I'm guessing you didn't share your interest rates, but I'm guessing that credit card debt is the most expensive. Take 5000 away from your inheritance and pay off that credit card debt. Then look 
at the Parent Plus student loan. That's probably the second most expensive chunk. It's the, the interest rates on 401k loans are usually fairly reasonable. I'd like to see you wipe that out too so that you no longer have a loan withstanding from your 401k. But I'd probably prioritize that Parent Plus loan. As of this point, I have spent your whole inheritance, right, because you have $50,000 in student loan debt. So use that additional money coming in from the side business, and you'll be able to wipe these debts totally clean within a year. At that point, I want you to keep very careful tally of the money that you are no longer paying toward those debts. So that money becomes money that you just start saving, and you save it like a crazy person, and you make sure that it is growing for your future without accruing any of these additional debts. I I don't know who passed away in your life, but boy, oh boy, they have just offered you a clean slate opportunity. And I'm really happy that you wrote in so that you're not going to blow it. Absolutely. Good luck, Terry. Well, great questions today, Catherine. Thank you so much. How can our listeners find us? They can write to us at mailbag at hermoney.com. All right. Anything special they need to know? I like the detail. Okay. All I right. Li- I like to hear the story. All right. Tell us your stories, mailbag at hermoney.com. And in today's Thrive, did you know that the wealth baby boomers have is now 12 times greater than that of millennials? I know that's not immediately the most shocking statistic since baby boomers have had many, many more years to earn their money and grow their money. But there are now some real concerns that the average net worth for young Americans has been on the decline since 1998, while the average net worth for every other generation has increased. Here are some numbers. In 1998, households in that 20 to 35 age bracket had an average net worth of a little over $103,000, but today their net worth is only about $101,000. That's according to the folks at Magnify Money. That's pretty bad news. And to put it in perspective, consider that in 1998, people age 52 to 70, those baby boomers, they had an average net worth of about $750,000. Today, they have $1.2 million. In other words, as other generations are improving their financial lives, millennials are finding themselves worse off. So why is this happening? Why is Gen Y struggling compared with other generations? Student debt, which now stands at $1.6 trillion, skyrocketing housing costs, and then the Great Recession, which made many millennials hesitant to actually get into the stock market. And the ones who didn't get in missed out on more than a decade of upside as the markets rebounded. Thankfully, the future is not all bleak. Millennials still have a lot of years to reach their full financial potential. If you're listening and you're among them, focus on your debt That can be a great way to reach your goals faster, like we were talking about with Terry. Pay down the credit cards, refinance your debts to lower your interest rates, and then plow all that extra money that you're reaping into your savings accounts, your emergency cushions, your investments. And also, even if the idea of being an active investor 
is one of those things that you just can't wrap your mind around. The thing you need to be doing is taking advantage of those 401ks, those IRAs, and not leaving any matching dollars on the table. As my dad used to say, that's free money. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thank you to Megan Schleck for the great conversation and for encouraging us all to invest in the things that inspire us. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review because we love to hear what you think. We want to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. We record this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Track Tribe, and our show comes to you through PRX. Join us next week. We're all lying down on the couch with financial therapist Amanda Clayman. She is going to help us figure out how we can use our money to fuel the things that are most important to us and how to line up our values with our relationships and our financial behaviors. Thanks so much. We'll talk soon.